The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching 2015's British sci-fi drama High Rise. And just another final warning, we will talk about the whole of the film, we will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen High Rise, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. What do Adaption, Where the Wild Things Are, American Psycho and the subject of this edition of Spoiler, High Rise, all have in common? That's right, someone at some point declared that these books were all unfilmable. Not taking unfilmable for an answer or even a word, High Rise's producer, Jeremy Thomas, has never doubted that it could be done. Hey! Listen! I've got an idea! A solid one! Talking to the Wall Street Journal, Thomas said, Some projects take years. A producer like me waits. Leave the real world behind. Welcome to the high life, the tagline reads. And rather than attempt to give you a linear plot to introduce the film, I'm going to give you a small selection of IMDb's 104 plot keywords for High Rise. Tower block, male rear nudity, social decay, debauchery, garden, lamb, close-up of eyes, squash, party, supermarket. There are others, well, 94 to be exact, but most of them I wouldn't feel comfortable reading out loud. Although it has given me an idea for a weird spoken word piece I could perform at an open mic night. Living in a high-rise requires a special type of behaviour. Acquiescent, restrained, perhaps even slightly mad. A genial director in Ben Wheatley, Tom Hiddleston, Sienna Miller, Keely Hawes and Jeremy Irons heading the cast, then surely nothing can go wrong. We have got to show the lower floors that we can throw a better party than them. Healthy competition is the basis of a modern, thriving economy. It would certainly appear that, in general, film critics would marry this film if they could. Social surrealist film of the year, The Guardian. There's almost nothing Ben Wheatley gets wrong in High Rise, The Telegraph. However, if we're really going to stretch the metaphor, if the critics in this case consider themselves living on the top floors, then the lower floors, the paying public, would only have a one-night stand with High Rise. Pretentious rubbish, said one. Half the audience left as High Rise failed to grip, said another. And for my money, one of the finest review titles I've ever seen. Mishmash. I'd watch out if I were you. There's some very unhappy bunnies bouncing about. So, the spoiler team are here to give the ultimate verdict. Or, we may just spend the next hour smashing up the place, interpreting our opinions in a dystopian fashion. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at the controversial subject of violence in movies, and we'll also be learning how to be a Hiddlestoner. But first... 
Joining me to drool over Tom Hiddleston <laughs> is Andy Goulding, and <laughs> someone who has surprisingly never had cause to mention Tom Hiddleston, <laughs> Rachel Burnett. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, everyone. So, Rachel, let's, 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 we need to get this out of the way quickly. Um, <laughs> there are occasions when I, I scroll through Facebook, and I, I think I'm actually friends with Tom Hiddleston, <laughs> uh, but it's not. It's it's your profile picture yes, quite regularly, isn't sorry it? Sorry about that. Yeah. Okay, so now, well, we're going to get we're going to get into Tom Hiddleston in some detail in a little while, which uh, I for one am very very pleased about. Um, but I'm assuming it's Tom that brought us to High Rise here. But did you enjoy the things that weren't him? Yes. And I'm really pleased with that question. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, I mean, he's, he's in it a lot, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, 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 that's not the question. But yes, yes. No, I really did. Because there's a lot more in it than just him, thank goodness. Because, I mean, much as I would like to watch a film that's entirely him, <laughs> I'm not so shallow. I do need more than that. And this film gave me a hell of a lot more than that. Okay. Now, Andy, now normally at the beginning, I usually give like a an ironic derogatory comment saying, you know, oh, this is a load of rubbish. But I mean, if you don't agree with me on this, then, you know, we are going to be turning over tables in the studio. <laughs> here. Um, it's a whole big pile of rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, it's going to be quite interesting this week, Paul, because I've watched this twice and I'm still not entirely sure what I think about this film. <laughs> so you're going to have to step up to the plate this week because there's no more room on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, actually, actually, I mean, we, obviously you're reverting to the fact that I like to sit on the fence because the view is always nice and I like to keep an open <laughs> mind about things even if I don't enjoy them. However... You're going to shove me off the fence because I, I can't believe you watched this twice. <laughs> yeah, I, I really wanted to watch this. And like, I mean, you know, let, let's not skirt around the subject that Tom Hiddleston is a complete draw. He's un, oh, it's, he's so handsome, it hurts, isn't it? Yes, it, it does um, hurt me not, regularly. Not only, not only that, though. It's not just, you know, the, when, you, when you talk there, Rachel, you know, about the, the, a shallowness that can come in that. Actually, no, the, there's a charisma about yeah, this guy yeah, which just oozes off the TV screen or your, your cinema screen or actually... Actually, if you hear him interviewed when mm-hmm. he's talking, anything, you know, his voice is, oh, man. Anyway, and we yeah. thought it would be you that was going to I know, him, didn't we? <laughs> stealing all my lines. I know. So, <laughs> so I, I was in a race to watch this. I think when we all discussed about it, I liked the idea of it. Uh, but I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm certainly on, on the side of the people that I certainly wouldn't walk out of it. I, I didn't turn it off. However, there's, 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 there was little or no connection for me with this film whatsoever and it's disappointing because I wanted I really really wanted to like it more See, it's a strange film because I've watched it twice as well I've watched it at the cinema um, because it's Tom and, uh, and also because my housemate wanted to see it I wish my housemate was here actually I, I refer to him quite a lot on spoiler but he's a good look, little barometer for me about what's going on he loves this film but he's very arty. He's a fine art <laughs> degree graduate and I, and he likes something that's a little bit out there. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of see why he likes it. And it's very, uh, the the visuals are very strong and cinematography is incredible. The production design's amazing. Costume, makeup, fantastic. So visually, it's, it is a spectacle. Mm-hmm. Thematically, I, I struggle with it too because it, it's a very disturbing film. You know I'm emotionally available. I think you're quite a sensitive person as well. Yeah, yeah. And it does, on so many levels, it affects you. There's a bit really near the start where Dr. Lang is, is peeling the facial mask off a skull. And it's it's revolting. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely revolting. And, you know, I come from a makeup and wig background. I'm, I can't even look at that going, it's okay, it's a model. I can't do that. It just makes my stomach turn over. And that sort of maintains all the way through the whole film. I'm feeling... A little bit queasy, a little very disturbed, and especially as a woman, I don't know if it's the same for a man, but you know the women are being raped. I think mm-hmm. most of the time, yeah, um, treated like objects. It is a very uncomfortable watch, but that doesn't make me hate it. 
it makes me really curious and interested as to why would this happen and how does why don't they just leave and so there's lots and lots of questions I like something I can really think about and um, thankfully Lang was in there Tom Middleton's character was in there and just giving me a little tiny weeny bit of stability because throughout it all apart from the bit where he painted and got some paint on his face and looked a bit tribal he maintained that sort of stability for me so when he was on screen I felt it's okay Tom's here so it felt okay but yeah. it is it's a very disturbing film I think anyone who says it isn't is lying to themselves it's a strange strange thing and to start the way it does with the dog the mm. book starts the same way, by the way, yeah. with him finishing off the dog. It it sets you up straight away. This is going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. And I, do you know, I think I knew that. I don't think I was, I still don't think I was prepared for it. Mm. So well, you refer to the book there, and this is from the, the source material is uh, J.G. Ballard, book of the same name, High Rise. Have you, you've read the book of that? I am reading it. And oh. actually, it's quite interesting. I've seen on the Internet Movie Database that people have said you should do both. It should be something that you read and watch and I would agree with that I, I don't think they should stand alone mm. I think yeah you could read the novel on its own because it stood on its own for many many years but if you're going to watch a film and want to know why or how or what the hell you've just watched read the book because it fleshes yeah. it out a yeah. lot yeah I, I, I think I am going to go that way and I think we all know how I like an audio book but I think I'd be too scared it's Tom Hiddleston reading it he'll make Is you it? feel nice yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Got me thinking that it'll be a nice listen, sort of. There'll be the strange will it, paradox. Will it though? It'll be a paradox of <laughs> this is making my ears feel nice, but all oh, the things that he's saying are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I am. I, I'm. I'm going to do that. And I, you know, I, I, I joked and teased at the beginning about maybe not watching this twice. I think it probably is worthy of a, of a second watch at some point, but it certainly won't be in the next couple of years mm. for, for me. Um, so, Andy, I mean, have you have you read the book or? Uh, I haven't. No. Will you? I, th- I think I might do, and with a view to then going back and, re- and uh, watching the film because, a third time <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> well the thing for me is is this, this is a film that I'm at the minute I'm I'm quite like almost exactly split on it I'm, I'm sort of 50-50 on what I like and don't like but I also kind of feel that in watching it down the years and kind of unpicking it I'm gonna find more in it there was a a quote from a, a guy called Peter De Bruges from a Variety he said uh, it was a negative review in which he said it could take decades for critics and audiences to appreciate whatever genius lurks behind the chaos. But for the time being, it seems like little more than madness. Now, he was talking uh, negatively about it, but he does in in that as well. He acknowledges that there, there probably is something lurking in there. And I think for me, the joy is going to come in sort of running across this on TV down the line and watching it and every time like finding a little bit more. And I think if I do read the novel, it might help me out because one of the things that I had trouble with in this was sort of the quite uh, minimal characterization. And often I kind of felt I didn't get the motivations behind some of the, the characters' actions and things like that. Uh, I think it, it takes its influence from a sort of group of experimental British films from like the late 60s, early 70s, uh, many of which I really enjoyed, so, so things like If and The Knack and How to Get It, and particularly uh, the work of Nicholas Roeg, who did stuff like Performance and The Man Who Fell to Earth and Don't Look Now, and I think that's been an acknowledged influence. But, I mean, it's it's very... I think in terms of... I've watched Ben Wheatley's back catalogue, and I think in terms of directorial flair this is his best film in that it, it's got a clever and compelling editing technique and sort of the performances that he's drawn out of his, his cast are kind of, 
I think deliberately quite alienating, but ultimately you, what that results in is the film feels like quite a cold thing and that kind of pushes me away from it as well. So I, I didn't really feel that there was a point of entry for me. I know Tom Hiddleston is supposed to be kind of the point of entry, but I think he quickly becomes as difficult to relate to as any of the other characters. But th- then the, all the time as well, I'm constantly questioning my own expectations like do we need a point of entry and do we do we need uh, need the characters to be warm and relatable and things like that yeah i mean well certainly on spoiler we've we've unveiled uh, something that we, we knew perhaps already in that sometimes you need to bring some of yourself to a film don't yeah. you and it can depend on how and when you do this you know i mean we i think one of the keys of it of, of, of us coming here and doing this is that we have a deadline to do it by mm-hmm. so actually you think well yeah i'm perhaps not in the mood for that but I've got to get this done. I've got to get it yeah. down. So I'm not, you know, it's, it's not particularly what I'm. I look for. I don't think that was the, that was the case though, because like I said to you, I was I was looking forward to it. Now, I mean, a, a statement or something that I was thinking about, which actually I was going to say for later on in the program, which is going to make me look really smart later on. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to have to try it now. Perhaps look less smart. <laughs> is that you know? It, it's and it, actually, no, I'm, I'm looking really dumb because it's a, it's a dystopian <laughs> film, isn't it? Yeah. Now, for them to produce anarchy and dystopia properly it is ugly it is awful it's yeah. like you said race it's really uncomfortable to watch and i don't i, I suppose i i'm I don't, I don't think i was looking for something softer somehow i don't know but something that there was and you're right there on the level of entry where can you where can you connect with this and you think it's going to be tom um and it's not really because yeah. he's he's kind of as repulsive as everyone else yeah. and um, i think they were just sort of there seems to be no good guys around you know to sort of um to, i think that's the point to fa- yeah yeah I think exactly. that's genuinely the point it was really interesting you said it was a cold film yeah absolutely if you read the book even more so yeah and you do get the motivation actually you must read the book you really really must because um the first sort of third of it is from lang's point of view then you get wilder and i'm getting a bit of the architect now Um. and you're finding out what is going on it's quite interesting wilder is actually the most relatable moment in the book which is weird um but it's and it's interesting that review that you said about um the genius behind it not yeah you could be describing the high rise itself this idea yeah. of this chaotic thing that might be genius behind it. This idea, oh, maybe this, it's to produce this new paradigm, this new way of living, that once you've cleared out all that rubbish, then you get this beautiful thing afterwards. And um, I think you do need to watch it a few times, even if it's really uncomfortable. And I'm really glad I'm reading the book because watching it once, you're not going to get it unless you're like super into Ballard and really get what he's trying to yeah. get. And you've watched Wheatley and you know the sort of tricks and stuff. It does need to be watched again and again, unfortunately. Yeah. Or watching it twice, um, you're not um, going to get it either, trust me. <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, it is the second time I've watched it, but I am reading the book and that has really helped me. Yeah. And there isn't a point of entry. Thank God. I'm really glad that neither of you found a point of entry because yeah. if you did, I'd probably walk out. <laughs> so yeah. I'd, I'd yeah. be you'd really you'd disturbed. Be in a room with them, yeah. I think there could be, and there are going to be people out there in the world who do find a point of entry in that film and go, oh yeah, I'd be like that or I'd be like this. It's supposed to be a little microcosm, isn't it, of, yeah. of society. And so we should be represented somewhere. I think the closest I came was the children. I was like, yeah, I could pretty much be the kids splashing about in the pool because mm. they're not really seeing what's going on. And as a woman, I'm probably more difficult for you guys to find a guy. But as a woman, I liked the little matriarchal little society that was breeding with the fire and you took mm. the kids there. They were trying to hold some kind of familial community thing together. So I felt I had a representative within that high rise. But for you guys, I don't know who the hell you'd look to. Because <laughs> for, a, for a man, there was nothing for you. 
the only person that became slightly nice was the gynaecologist who helped to deliver the baby and I still wanted him to die <laughs> <laughs> so okay. oh, this is this is tricky but, uh, I yeah. think Rachel just illustrated her point of entry I think there are two doors in the studio Andy I think we go out of that one over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay right now um, the high rise star Tom, Tom Hiddleston is just one of those actors who seems to inspire a particularly virulent strain of devotion and fan worship not least from our very own Rachel Burnett so she set aside some time in the show to explain to us just exactly why he's so darn swoonsome. Fandoms are nothing new, though the word may well be. The very first fandom of the modern age was actually for a fictional character, a certain Sherlock Holmes. The depth of adulation became evident in 1893 when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle killed off the famous detective and his fans held public demonstrations of mourning. Nowadays, there are fandoms based around musicians, actors, authors, films, books, even around people who are just being filmed going about their daily lives. We have Directioners, Pine Nuts, love that one, Brown Coats, and of course, the Hiddlestoners, the fandom that follows and adores Tom Hiddleston, and the one to which I am most closely aligned. Most fandoms have similar traits, an absolute adulation of the fandom's focus, a depth of knowledge about the object of adoration that sometimes borders on uncomfortable, and above all, a genuine affection for the film, book, person, and the cult of Hiddles is no different. But how do you become a true Hiddlestoner? Here are my top tips. He's so fine. 1. Watch all of his films, not just Thor and The Avengers. Tom's body of work is very broad, he's not just Loki, you know, and there really is something for everyone. My absolute favourite is Jim John Mush's Only Lovers Left Alive which is a small but perfectly formed film that seems to be about vampires. No, it's not that kind of vampire film, Twilighters, but is really about eternal love. You drank. Ian. Three. And you must watch him do Shakespeare. His portrayal of Henry V in the Hollow Crown series is masterful. You have witchcraft in your lips, Kate. If anyone can show the doubters how honest and relevant Shakespeare still is, it's this man. And there is more eloquence in a sugar touch of them than in the tongues of the French council. Two, listen to him reading poetry or letters. I love poetry, and I love poetry about love. His voice has been likened to thunder coated in honey, and I fully concur with this description. While I could happily listen to him reading a Haynes manual, we're fortunate that there is a huge amount of Tom's spoken word out there. From the audiobook of Sally Gardner's The Red Necklace, which I strongly recommend, I'm a huge fan of Sally's, to a variety of poetry and Shakespeare's sonnets. Snuggle up in your PJs, make yourself a hot chocolate, then close your eyes and let the voice wash over you. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. Three, check out his charity work. You see, this is where the Hiddlestoner's hearts get really lost. Not just charming as a charming man on a particularly charming day in the land of charm, he's also incredibly giving, goddammit. Tom is an ardent supporter of UNICEF, a children's charity, just to make doubly sure of form, and has worked with them since 2013. His Twitter feed is very heavily weighted towards raising awareness about UNICEF projects. Hiddlestoners often join in with campaigns when he promotes them. Many took part in the Live Below the Line Challenge and are currently helping share new campaigns like hashtag emergency lessons. Together we can celebrate the importance of schools for children in emergencies. Four, watch some of his more in-depth interviews on YouTube. 
while not as obviously swoonsome as his now legendary dance lesson with Alan Carr. These longer videos are the true Hiddlestoner's real indulgence. There are some fascinating Q&A events with Tom from all over the globe, and at each one he's genuinely engaging, articulate, witty, and offers real insights into acting and, quite often, the very nature of being. He drops whole sections of Shakespeare into his conversations too, which is always impressive. Hang there like fruit, my soul, till the tree die, which is beautiful, I think. Five, get used to yearning. Now I've explained where the adulation for Tom comes from, it may be that you too are experiencing a sudden rush of affection for Tom. I love you so much, it hurts me. I can only apologise. Now you've felt it, there's no return from it. You may be feeling slightly achy in places you didn't know could ache, and you may find yourself sighing deeply at random times, overwhelmed by the sheer quality of the man. You'll start comparing all men to Tom, wondering why Gary doesn't know any Shakespeare or why Dave has a voice like chalk on a blackboard. Meanwhile, Tom will keep doing achingly beautiful things that just make it worse, yet somehow better too. The heart is is uncontrollable. You can't legislate for who you fall in love with. Finally, you must feel with a certainty based on nothing more flimsy than a dream that should you and Tom ever meet, you would, of course, wow him with your dazzling personality, your vast library and your ability to recite the Shakespeare passages you know he loves. And so in awe would he be that he would cast aside the trappings of fame and success and settle down with you in a cottage by the sea. This is the daydream that sustains every Hiddlestoner in their plight for his affection, his interest... And because we're all just children at heart and still believe in fairy tales, his hand in marriage. So, get thee to a theatre, a cinema, a library, educate yourself, indulge in poetry, Shakespeare, Jarmouche, Le Carre, and, okay, a little bit of Marvel if you must, and allow yourself to fall gleefully and gladly into a fantastic fandom. I love you. I always will. So... Great stuff. Thanks for that, Rachel. So, um, what did I say? I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> Quite like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rachel. It's um, kind of how Tony the Tiger would I know, say I was it. thinking about Frosty. <laughs> you know, even after this, though, I mean, I'll still be lured and, you know, it'll still be straight away, yeah, he's in it. Even like, like I said earlier, if he's being interviewed or someone like that, it's straight away, oh, yeah. Mm. I wonder what he's got to say. Yeah, he's, he sells things very well. I think he? he's definitely one of those actors that you know that eventually he's going to give that devastating performance that's going to get get him an Oscar. Yeah, I hope but so. But he's, he's, at the minute, he's, he seems to be... He's hard to pin down, isn't he? You never know what he's going to be in next. Mm. I think but, he's still playing. I think he's still finding out what he enjoys doing. Yeah. So, which is great that he's actually got the chameleonic ability to do that. Obviously, he has this this massive appeal for women, but he seems to be one of these actors who men absolutely love as mm. well. He seems to have a, like quite a universal appeal, doesn't he? Yeah. Like Tom Hardy, would you say? Uh, yeah, that's that sort of thing. I'd say, yeah, yeah, or Ryan Gosling, oh, someone just, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, just about <laughs> to say, uh, my man Ryan. Right. <laughs> anyway, I knew this would turn into a Hiddleston and the festival. Of course. Uh, okay, but actually, I mean, it, in a way, with Mr. Hiddleston being such a big star, did did you? think maybe that turned away from the character of Wilder who you mentioned earlier who actually is a very very pivotal if if such a thing exists in this film a pivotal character and really someone that I didn't understand whatsoever is he supposed to be like a bit of a working class council estate thug or is he a documentary maker 
And I'm not saying that those two people can't be one and the same thing. I'm sure they can. So, yeah, well, I mean, what about, what about Wilder? Did you, I mean, Andy, what did you think about this guy? Well, in terms of performance, I thought Luke Evans was the best mm. performance in the film. He was, he was almost sort of feral, wasn't he? He was so, it was such a powerful, forceful performance. In terms of the character himself, though, I'm with you, Paul, and that I, uh, again, I, I struggled to, to see his motivation. So what what was driving him on to uh, to commit these uh, these deeds that he uh, that he was uh, committing all the way through the film? But I'm I'm really fascinated with the issues of class, and there is a sort of biased part of me that will happily sit down and watch a sort of lefty diatribe and just sort of oh you're darn tootin' <laughs> <laughs> enjoy it. But one of the things that I really liked about this was that it, it doesn't simplify. It's not one sided examination of of class. And the people on the lower floors in this were as inhumane and kind of morally skewed as the people on the upper floors. Ben Wheatley didn't say, right, we're we're in favour of this person or this person. So uh, Wilder, I mean, I there were elements of him that I understood, but I also really hated him. And when they were going after him, I wanted him to get away and I wanted him to, to get caught. So it's it's just indicative of how I felt about this film all the way through, I think, in that I was split on almost every issue. So... Mm. With with a character like this, I didn't know how to feel about him, and I think that that's part of what drew me to it and pushed me away from it. He's a very strange character. Obviously, we see him as a husband, um, not a good husband, I hasten to add. <laughs> but you know, with his kids, and then taking all the kids to the pool, mm. he seemed like fun at that point. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's a good laugh. <laughs> but then, obviously, you know, drowning the Afghan and um, and things like that. It's it's almost like he found some kind of freedom in being able to do whatever he wanted without consequence yeah. and. Um, he also simultaneously wanted to explore that and document that. And he'd obviously just done the documentary about the prison. Um, that comes out more in the book, by the way, about his background. And docu- he's a documentary maker for sure. And so he's seen this kind of what happens in prisons and he could see probably the mirror of what was happening in the high rise. But he was also against sort of the injustice of, you know, the people on the lower echelons not getting their power and whether people on the top were getting champagne. And so at, at the start, possibly this little bit of working class, oh, we're going to up the ante and go and... Um, and fight for our rights and things but then it just tipped over didn't it into this kind of, as soon as he killed the dog I think yeah. that was that was his moment of mm. oh nothing happened I can kill something and nothing happens and he just he became wild and there's that moment when he's recording his voice into the recorder and it's, it becomes this roar this kind of it starts off with I'm Richard Wilder and then it goes and then it becomes this this feral thing and I think that was that was his moment, especially because then he obviously went ahead and did what he's wanted to do for a long time, which was to basically rape um, Charlotte Neville. Is that her name? Charlotte yeah, Mel- Melville. M- Melville, that's right. And because he, th- I mean, he just dragged her by the leg. It was almost it became cavemanish, didn't yeah. it? It was like I can do what I like now, and it was it was just awful. And he really did get his comeuppance, thank God. But and I was glad it was at the hands of the women. But yeah, it, he was a very an amazing performance by Luke Evans. Yeah. Absolutely incredible because I hated him with an absolute passion. Just incredibly, intensely dislikable character. So while we're on, while we're on the characters, I'm going to drop in my disgust question. I, I'm liking these at the moment. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure how good it is to listen to. However, here goes. Sienna Miller, disgust. <laughs> oh my god just that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think she was good in this. I think she was better than I thought she was going to be. I've I have this horrible 
women against women thing where she's so beautiful and she's so perfect that I struggle to watch her normally because she's so beautiful. I get distracted by it. Mm. I'm like, oh, gosh, she's so pretty. How can she be so pretty? And then I can't watch the performance because I'm too distracted, which is unfair to her because she's probably really good, which she was in this. Yeah, she was. And I thought maybe that little bit of extra age, she's acting really, really well. She was so vulnerable at that point. Um, She was definitely one of the most complex of the female characters and so strong at the end. I was really mm. glad that she got the strength back and I was really sort of rooting for her, which you don't root for many characters in this film, but I was definitely rooting for her because she did seem to be or wanted to be a good mum as well and trying to keep Toby out of what she was doing and trying to encourage him still. So, yeah, she was a decent entry point for a woman uh, again. I mean, she was a bit of a tart, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, she was in this high rise. She was extremely beautiful. She had no you know, restrictions on her at that point. She could do what she wanted, but she still didn't do it without, she didn't harm anyone with it. And I think that was the important thing for her character. There was no harm. Yeah, I mean, I, I made a note that I think she plays damaged very well. And I, I, mm-hmm. I, I was worried about using that word damaged. I think it's, it's, it's too, I want to, I've written also in brackets for want of a better word. Mm. No, it's, it's, it's a good word. Yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, she played as Edie. Um, I can't remember what the film was called. No, it's probably called Edie. About Warhols and Muse. And um, that was the only other film I've watched her in where I've really paid attention to, perf- to her performance. And again, damaged. Mm, and she yeah. did it beautifully. She was so fragile and she does that fragility really well. But what I liked about this performance was, although she was fragile and vulnerable, there was a steel in her which she managed to get in the end and she was stronger than the men. And I thought that was a really, really good performance from her. It was. Now, we record this uh, on the ground floor of the uh, Mm. University of Lincoln. Uh, So we're going to take a short break, uh, during which uh, some of us are going to uh, go up in the lift and and see see what we can do to the upper class, uh, (laughs) upper classes up on the third floor. If Um, they haven't blocked the lifts. Yeah, well, they're only journalism students around here. I think we stand stand a good chance, I think. Uh, Okay, so later Andy's going to be taking a look at the conscientious subject of violence in movies. And that's all after we go and smash up upstairs. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning to buy anything from Amazon, if you do that via the links on our website, we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including the original High Rise book by J.G. Ballard, read by Tom Hiddleston. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help buy producer Johnny a fake ID so he can go on that Club 1830 holiday he's always dreamt of. Now... Back to the show. So welcome back to Spoiler, uh, where we're reviewing the whole, all of High Rise. Now, High Rise certainly has its fair share of violent scenes, and the depiction of violence in movies has long been a controversial and divisive subject. Andy's been examining his reaction to some of the big screen's most violent moments. While watching Ben Wheatley's back catalogue of films, I noticed that scenes of violence are a common factor in his work, but that each film approaches this controversial subject in a different way. Kill List, 
a brutal drama in which two hitmen work their way through a list of targets, is unflinching in its chilling depiction of mounting brutality in relation to psychological instability. Psychology, isn't it? Well, Sightseers mines comedy from its numerous murders by pairing them with disproportionately trivial motives. Look, I'm sorry, but if you don't pick up this excrement immediately, then I'm going to have to inform the National Trust. You <laughs> report that to the National Trust, mate. In the ongoing debate about screen violence, there is fuel for protest in both examples, but the reasons behind these objections would be significantly different. On the one hand, issue might be taken with the visceral, realistic images in Kill List. <laughs> well, on the other hand, one could accuse sightseers of trivialising violence by not treating it with any degree of seriousness. Never thought about murdering innocent people like that before. No, he's not a person seen he's a Daily Mail reader. Those attempting to object to both films may find themselves in a potentially embarrassing logical pincer movement, from which the only escape is crass oversimplification. And why not? After all, oversimplification has been the chief weapon of self-appointed moral guardians the world over since time began. There's an element of personal bitterness to that last statement, in case that was too subtle for you to detect. I completely understand anyone who does not want to subject themselves to images of violence and respect their right to avoid films they feel may contain violent scenes. But on more than one occasion, I've been confronted by those not willing to treat my attitude to screen violence with the same level of respect. In truth, to say I have a definitive moral attitude towards screen violence is ludicrous, given the different levels of graphicness with which it can be depicted the different reasons filmmakers can have for wanting to show these images, and many other variables that make screen violence another in a long list of subjects that cannot be, but frequently are, definitively judged with one sweeping statement. Muddying the waters considerably is the rise of the horror subgenre known as torture porn, a term which suggests no artistic value or other motivation than sick thrills based on extended images of graphic violence meted out to helpless characters. The term torture porn emerged in the early 21st century and was derisively applied to such films as Eli Roth's Hostel and the seemingly endless Saw franchise. While I still think it is better to judge films individually than group them into blurrily defined categories for easier self-righteous condemnation, I'll admit to feeling uncomfortable with certain films that hang their popularity on nothing more than repetitious mutilations aiming to outdo each other in outrageous tastelessness. But the moral outrage over torture porn, in much the same way as the video nasties hysteria of the 80s, has seeped into the culture to the extent that many people are ready to shriek the accusatory words, SICK THRILLS! anything remotely violent before they have even considered that perverse gratification is probably not the agenda of every 18 certificate film. On several occasions I found myself regarded with patronising disgust for being a proud fan of Stanley Kubrick's 1971 film A Clockwork Orange. Adapted from the novel by Anthony Burgess, A Clockwork Orange is a complex masterpiece which examines the relationship between unmotivated human violence and free will, and whether the forcible removal of the latter could ever be a plausible solution to the former. The film follows Malcolm McDowell as Alex DeLarge, the head of a gang of thugs and rapists who is captured by police and subjected to an experimental aversion therapy which makes him physically sick at the very thought of violence. Very early on in the film, there is a scene in which Alex's gang attack and brutalise a homeless man, or soon after that comes a more graphic rape scene. Just 
Each time I've locked horns with people who accuse me of perversity for loving A Clockwork Orange. My critics have admitted that they turned off the film during one of the aforementioned scenes and never continued watching. That they didn't want to see any more of these images, I sympathise with. I'm less sympathetic to the assertion that no one else should want to see these images either. The frequently heard phrase in these arguments is, I don't consider that sort of thing to be entertainment. To which I would reply that, no, I don't consider scenes of harrowing violence viewed in complete isolation from their overall context to be entertainment either. What I do consider entertaining are films that engage fully with their subjects in order to intelligently address the central themes, and it is my contention that until you have watched every last frame of a film, it is unfair to pass judgement on it, much less on anyone who enjoyed it. Clockwork Orange is a two-hour essay on the human race's relationship to violence, and in order to make its points properly and as powerfully as possible, it cannot shy away from showing what we don't want to see in order to then dissect the very responses it has provoked. I don't enjoy its more graphic moments per se, but I do enjoy the fully rounded debate that springs from them, and which will be significantly diminished by the removal of the violent scenes. It is clear that the motivation behind A Clockwork Orange is not simply to shock and offend, but to encourage a greater understanding of our species and its propensity for brutality. To promote intellectual growth through examination rather than outright rejection, the latter response ironically being more likely to result in reactionary, tabloid-approved cries for the return of corporal and capital punishment. Another trait I have often found in those who have berated me for some of my film choices is a delight in a different, apparently more palatable form of screen violence. Time and again I've been called sick for enjoying Blue Velvet or Goodfellas by people who then proclaim their favourite films to be Die Hard, Predator or action films of that ilk. Now I enjoy an action film myself from time to time, but I wouldn't kid myself that they're not violent and arguably in a more troubling way than A Clockwork Orange. The body count in action films tends to be pretty high, but its victims are dispatched by quick gunshots, and while we may see the odd jet of blood or exploding brain, their demise is not lingered over. They are expendable, superfluous to the plot, and therefore of no interest to the viewer other than as a momentary inspiration for an adrenaline rush. In any case, these walking corpses in waiting are completely dehumanised for our entertainment, so that we can just sit back and enjoy the mass slaughter. I would argue that, while the on-screen deaths are less harrowing to watch in this case, the wider implications of the audience's response is far more disturbing. The reaction to this type of screen violence is likely to be whooping, cheering and laughing, as opposed to the joyless but conceptually necessary horror, disgust and anger an audience experiences during Dennis Hopper's rape of Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet. Now, which of those two responses to images of violence seems more appropriate and which more sick? Is the close examination of violence for the purposes of discussion more perverse than a mass of quick, faceless killings for the purpose of entertainment and a simplified tit-for-tat take on moral gratification. I have a theory, unsurprisingly not a very popular one, that in the case of many viewers, an aversion to closer examinations of violence stems more from an unwillingness to acknowledge that part of themselves and their own species than from simple disapproval. By watching A Clockwork Orange or Blue Velvet in their entirety, people would be forced to address uncomfortable truths about exactly why they love seeing hordes of extras mown down by gunfire, and never question this in the same way they angrily question other people's desire to acquire a greater understanding of the psychology of violence. Upon its release, 
Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs provoked outrage for a scene in which a gangster cuts off the ear of a restrained cop. In the midst of half-baked speeches about the damaging effects of showing such images, everyone seemed to forget that Tarantino does not actually show this particular act of violence, instead having his camera discreetly pan away to stare at a nearby wall. This was because Tarantino understood that the capacity for violence in an audience's own mind trumps anything anyone ever has or ever will be able to show on screen. Hey, what's going on? You hear that? <laughs> That's why so many people prefer to have their victims reduced to the level of objects before they're shot, blown up or crushed. Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery of all films, features perhaps the most intuitive acknowledgement of this uncomfortable truth. When one of Dr. Evil's minions is flattened by a steamroller, the film cuts to an idyllic suburban home where a housewife's baking is interrupted by a phone call. Hello? Yes, my husband is the henchman in Dr. Evil's private army. Visibly shocked by the conversation, she then sits her young son down to tell him the news. Your stepfather was run over by a steamroller. But Mom, since Dad left, she's been like a father to me. The mother holds her son close to her and replies... People never think how things affect the family of a henchman. Andy, thanks for that. Now, but with regards to, to sort of movie violence, I think it's certainly sometimes the things you, you can't see, but even sometimes hear, or even don't hear. I mean, like, I've, I've made a note about the, the, the policeman's ear in Reservoir Dogs. You don't mm. see that. No. You don't actually see it happen. But it happens in your head, mm. and that's even more, isn't it? Yeah, and I think people were convinced that they had seen it happen. That was mm. the thing, wasn't it? And I, th- I think I sometimes need to watch the f- some of the films that I don't watch just because what's happening in my head, just because of the principle of it. So I'm thinking, what were those films where the guy they trapped him in a dungeon there to hack their legs off or whatever to get Saw. out? Saw. Right, yeah. There we go, right, so Saw. So the premise of Saw, Saw stuck with me for a very, very long time. And I think I did actually sort of dare myself to watch it late night, one night when it was on and there was nothing else on or whatever. And I thought, you know, actually, the, the reality of watching the film was nowhere near no. as horrific mm. uh, as it was in my head. But you'll still not get me to see Human Centipede. <laughs> um, right. OK. So, I mean, before we sort of move towards the ending, I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the elephant in the room here is always... Hey, Rachel, what do you think of the music? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Clint Mansell, isn't it? So, you know, winner yeah. straight away. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, there, there seemed to be some kind of obsession with the ABBA track SOS. <laughs> and it? why ever not? Yeah. <laughs> it was wonderfully done. The Portishead version was absolutely cracking. It came mm. at a really good point as well in the film. Yeah. And um, which was fantastic. Those vocals that sort of came over. Oh, wonderful. But yeah, um, Clint Mansell's score from the from the beginning was absolutely fantastic. He's becoming more and more orchestral with his with his scores and they're becoming much bigger and epic in scope and it really fit this so beautifully well. And that fantastic percussive beat that he puts behind everything, which he used in Moon a lot, and we did talk about that on that episode, but he used it so fantastically in this. It was just wonderful. I think Clint Mansell. That was really important as well, wasn't it? It was this really full sort of Mm. big, because it it fit so well with... I I did think this, for for what it is, this was quite an overlong film, but then the way it worked with that soundtrack and everything, and maybe that that's the point, it, that, that extra space allowed the, the madness to escalate mm. to the, the level it did, whereas if it had been 90 minutes, they would have had to cram too much into too small a space. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I agree with you. I think it feels like an assault on the senses anyway when you're yeah. watching it and you're kind of, oh, would you just get to some kind of ending because I'm feeling exhausted and disgusted and... 
But you're right insofar as there's no way that it would happen in 90 minutes. You'd be going, oh, come on. I mean, you've sort of, it's stretched credibility anyway because you're thinking, just move out. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, but that, that's one of those questions that you're not supposed to ask, isn't I know. it? And it defeats the point. It's like yeah. people who watch Edward Scissorhands and at the end say, where did he get the ice from? Yeah. It's, a, it's a completely different. Yeah. And actually in the book, it kind of explains it better. As to oh, why really? There's didn't. a reason. Yeah. And, why, yeah. and why the architect and his wife didn't move out as well. There's a whole thing that I'm reading at the moment about that. So really, seriously, read the novel or listen to Tom Hiddleston reading it for you. <laughs> I suppose so. well, I suppose it's the, the aspiration, though, isn't it? I suppose mm. the, because, you know, when, when Tom Hiddleston enters, he's still only, well, he's, he's, he's certainly above midway, but he's still got the aspiration to be upstairs mm. and upstairs and further upstairs. And I suppose that's always the aspiration, isn't it? You know, yeah. which is, uh, I think people can, you can almost relate to that from, you know, wanting to move from, you know, a shabby part of town to... Yeah. And I, I, also, they're not rented. These are bought properties. Yeah. And it's, uh, there's an element of, well, I'm not moving. I bought this and yeah. nobody's going to buy it from you. Mm. And if you're on the lower echelons, you can't afford to just give up your home like that. So there's there's lots of different aspects of why you would stay and fight for your corner of the of the world. Well, for me, there's so. the scariest ones that, that they seem to be sort of psychologically institutionalised. Mm. They've, they've kind of imposed this thing on themselves. It's almost like they've rejected the outside world. And it would be a massive step to have to leave there and go, yeah. and go back to it. That's totally in the book. You really need to read the book. Because <laughs> that's really, really explored this idea of like actually wanting to isolate themselves in this building and trying to keep like police come quite a bit in the book but they're not just put off by um anthony royal which you see in the film they're put off by the other residents the yeah. other residents come down and say go away leave us so actually they want to be left alone it's really it's it's more disturbing in a way the book because you're thinking what is wrong with you people <laughs> but um it's it's fascinating exploration of the human psyche See, i mean we touched on the building there now if i was uh, on a, a maybe a bbc2 review show late at night i'd say well well andy the building itself is a character in this movie. <laughs> um, well, it's not. It's a building. But it's, it, I don't know. Right. Take away the violence. Would you like to live there? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think it's been too tainted in my head to, uh, <laughs> to even consider that. I think uh, that whole thing about the, the building being a character, a lot of people <laughs> said that it was, that's more in the book as well. Because mm. I didn't, I didn't think that really came across in the film and a lot of people complained that, that was some of the things that were missing. But I think in the way it was kind of uh, edited, the quick cuts and like constantly moving from like one floor to the other, I think he, Ben Wheatley was trying to sort of make the building like a sort of living, breathing thing. And probably the major issue that I had with it was that I, I kept feeling like I, I wanted him to, I wanted to see more, I wanted him to let one scene breathe a bit more. But then that would then undermine the whole sort of chaotic rhythm of the film. So, yeah, yeah. you're uh, not allowed to breathe. There's, no, that's the There's, yeah, there's no oxygen the in the place. You're not allowed to breathe. But I, I think the, the other major problem I had with it is probably that I think it's got an amazing cast. And yet, does it seem slightly like they're wasted in a film where character and performance seems almost secondary to editing and getting I mean the, the moment that I've really felt this was when later on in the film Bill Patterson turns up and I love Bill Patterson and he didn't really seem to there didn't really seem to be any point in him being there he, <laughs> he was very, he was really in it for a short time uh, I didn't like I came away from this and I didn't really feel I'd seen Jeremy Irons give much of a performance even though he's quite sort of pivotal performance seemed very secondary to editing and kind of uh, just kind of the overall atmosphere and so 
Well, that that review title, and I think I, I think that review title I talked about earlier, Mish Mash, and I won't go into I won't go in, I won't read the whole thing, but it is quite entertaining on IMDb. A fellow called Stephen Drew. Well done. Uh, <laughs> it says here, you look at the cast, 10 out of 10. You see the storyline, 9 out of 10. And you see the cinematography, 9 out of 10. And we settle down, come on, movie, entertain as we cry. One hour later, we just cry. <laughs> uh, we, you know, it's good. And then there you go. he goes into like the argument with his wife about it. She's just saying, turn it off, turn it off. I don't want, want to watch it anymore. I think... Bill Patterson was in there because he's a fan of J.G. Ballard. <laughs> and uh-huh. he went, oh, can I be in it? Because I honestly can't think of any other reason why he was in it. But it was a nice, oh, it's Bill Patterson. Yeah. Which made me feel a bit nice. <laughs> and I needed to feel nice at that point. Um, but I, I think the performances had to be strong, even though there's no character, sort of characterisation per se. They're not, there's no arc per se, apart from Wilder. But you need experienced actors that can cope with what they're doing. Mm. That is yeah. a big ask, what you're asking them to do. And you you can't just get people that aren't experienced to do things like that and, and make it look real. Did it seem real to you? If it seemed real, those performances pulled it off. Especially Keely Hawes. For me, she's one of these people. She makes it look so yeah. damn easy yeah, yeah. that you're probably not 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 actually appreciating just how good a performance That's that was. True, yeah. and, and we could so, be sat we could be sat here saying how hammy it was, how mm, they chewed the scenery and over egged the pudding. Yeah, yeah and you could a, so have done that. Yeah, yeah. So and, I think uh, yeah. did really well. Right, we're very much in danger of Rachel changing my mind about this film. So we need. <laughs> We need to move, I suppose, now move, move towards the ending. And uh, on spoiler, we always like to talk about the endings. That's why, why we're here. Um, so uh, what did you, did you think of the ending? I mean, uh, and, and I'd like, also like to move on to what happens next with Tom Hiddleston and uh, a load of upper-class ladies at the top of a roof and a nice garden. Not just upper-class ladies. Middle class. Helen was up there oh, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well. And the rest of the ladies. In well, fact, this was now. the beautiful thing is for, for the ladies. <laughs> is, that, um, is that the ladies, um, they made their little campfire, didn't they? And they carried on the school as best they could and looked after the children and were nurturing. Mm-hmm. And it's all very one-sided. We didn't really see any women being really awful. And I think we would have done. And I think that we should have done. Um, I think it's sort of like painting all women white isn't great. So it was... Um, Kind of okay, there they all are, and we've got the new baby. So there's like the you know this birth, this and obviously then we have Lang as some kind of father figure because he's looking after the ladies, and so um, <laughs> even though they don't need looking after um, because they basically it almost feels like they orchestrated it, even though they didn't, they just made the best of it. So there was a sigh of relief at the end, even though he'd just eaten a dog, which is fairly gross. <laughs> um, but there was a, yeah, a hang on, I need to take you back there fairly. <laughs> <laughs> Very. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think as a, as a vegan, you're just thinking comparatively. Yeah. Well, it could be, you know, it's the same to me as anything else. But anyway, <laughs> so, um, yeah, there was a sense of relief of we're going to have a bit of downtime now and we're all going to breathe and we're all going to get back to some kind of equilibrium. But it was the little, the little nod towards the next building starting. Mm-hmm. And actually in the book that, because I have, I've done a bit of a Billy Crystal in Harry Met Sally and I've read the last page. <laughs> and um, there's a mention of, um, of the next building and how they can see that the lights mm. are starting to go out on the other floors. So that's, it's starting to break down. And this idea that they're going to create this whole almost, this, see, we think dystopian, he thinks utopian. He mm. thinks he's found this perfect yeah. new paradigm, which is a really fascinating way to finish. Like, what do you think about it? It's, it's challenging the viewer, you know, because we're all relieved and we're feeling better, hopefully, because everyone's like, everything, the lights are on and there's a baby and the women aren't in pain anymore. And so there's an element of, oh, OK, now what do we do? 
And so, if this was the 70s, then the 80s is about to follow and there's going to be a lot more of these built. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, this is, yeah. We, we hear this little snatch of broadcast from the outside world, yes, don't we? And whose do. voice is it? Well, it's Thatcher. I'm it's staying in the building. It's the chilling part of the film. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the, like, at the end, the, the, it was the perfect choice of closing music. It was Industrial Estate by The Fall. Uh, and the fall are almost the band equivalent of this film. I think they're, they're a band that is so anarchic and all yeah. over the place, but they're so uh, uh, interesting. And I've I've got loads of fall albums, and I go back to them all the time. But it's also a real challenge to listen to an entire fall album. And uh, I think I get a similar sort of thing from the fall as I do from watching this film. And I will go back to this film when it, it comes round. I think. I will like it increasingly the more I see it. So I'm pleased the fall exists. I don't listen to him. I'm pleased this film exists. Um, <laughs> but I, well, Ben Wheatley. I mean, we've not touched so much on on, on Ben Wheatley now. Uh, Sightseers, Sightseers is an extraordinary film. Have we all seen Sightseers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So we've all seen that. And you said earlier that you'd seen his, his, his back catalogue. Yeah. So bearing in mind that I really enjoyed Sightseers, I didn't particularly enjoy this. Although I. I do take on board what Rachel's saying. Um, am I going to like Kill List? Probably not. It's okay. a bit more... It's very violent. It's his most violent film. And it's... Uh, there are elements of humour, but not a lot. It's quite It's quite dark. I would go... If you like sightseers, I would go to Down Terrace next. Okay. That's quite violent, but a bit... A bit more in the same way Sightseers is, a bit more kind of humorous as well. I see. Okay. But I think one of the final things I'm going to say about this is that it was brilliant to see Reese Shearsmith. Yeah. And, but not be the most peculiar or frightening person on the screen. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, he, he was relatively normal, wasn't he? he and was. his character was still outrageously odd. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> with his lovely taped sleeves and his perfect teeth. <laughs> it is, but I mean, you know, for Hiddleston fans and Ben Wheatley fans, it does look like the boy Hiddleston's going to team up with him again for uh, the Frank Miller comic book, Hard Boiled, which I know nothing about. No, me, no, either. me neither. Okay, so that that's that's going to be. Would you, you know, it's going to be. It's, it still wouldn't put me off watching that, though. You know, this this experience I've had of, of 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 putting this on, thinking about it, it's still not going to put me off watching that. You know, well, it's Tom Hiddleston, isn't it? Do you think <laughs> you, you would ever get drawn into it again if you if you popped it on, you popped the tally on, and it was on, and it was like twenty minutes in? Do you think you would ever get drawn into it? and yes. fascinated again. Yeah, of course I will. <laughs> <laughs> of course, well, I, recently, and it was it was before watching a film that we're going to review for our, our, our next programme, because I didn't particularly want to watch it, um, I was looking around for something else to watch, and I watched No Country for Old Men, which is a film I don't like. I don't really? like, I, yeah, I don't like that film. And I thought, well, enough time's passed, let's see if I, you know, again, I was thinking about that time, you know, did I watch, is it, was it me? Is it me that's wrong? Everyone else is going on about it. it. It must be me. I'll watch it again. I watched it again. No, it's still rubbish. No, it's you, it's you that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> fight, fight, we're not, fight, we're fight. Not, we're not, we've got to do a Coen Brothers film. Mm, okay, series, series five, we'll have a, we'll, I'm, I'm, all, I'll, all I'm promising there is I'll think about it. <laughs> okay, so, as we head now to our final verdicts. Now, i yeah, that IMDb review, it stuck with me, the mishmash. I, don't, I, don't know, I really don't know why. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, if you felt that High Rise was soft, flowery, light, delicious mashed potato, 
or 1980s robot advertised add water to suspicious looking pellets instant mash. <laughs> I think we all know where we're going on this. Uh, Rachel. I'm going to go to, um, there was a slightly superior to smash stuff called Yeoman. Ooh. It was more powder. It was less lumpy. See, I didn't, I didn't so, name smash. I, I thought we might get in trouble if we... Uh, I'm, a, I'm naming it. <laughs> that stuff with the robots. That stuff. Um, it was a little bit lumpy. But this other stuff, I don't think you even get it anymore, but you used to take it on caravanning holidays, just makes me think of sightseers. And it was far superior, but not quite as good as mashed potato, real mashed potato. So mm. I'm going to go for that. Uh, well, the, the, the smash robots used to terrify me. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with smash, but with a bit of a bit of very light, nice, fluffy potato mixed in because <laughs> yeah. I, I did. There were elements I enjoyed. Can you still get smash? Yeah. Well, feel free oh, to feel free to send us. We might, yeah, we might review some of that. <laughs> Let's go out and get smashed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, well, obviously it's the robot stuff for me. Right, anyway, <laughs> enough of that. <laughs> uh, we're going to leave you now. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I always forget to say thank you, don't I? Thanks, everyone. <laughs> so it's, it, Seven years I've been doing this radio station. <laughs> Seven years. And it's something I always forget to do at the end of a programme. Even if it's written down on the script, I, I still, I just, I'm so ignorant. Anyway, uh, thanks to our producer, Johnny. Uh, thanks especially to you for listening. And of course, Rachel and Andy. And Andy, hey, we'll leave you now with one of his brilliant poems. I've just applied for admin work at the local county court. They've offered me an interview. Terrific, so I thought. But then I found a questionable added stipulation for the Ministry of Justice to progress my application. They've sent me through a document, a list of dignitaries, whom they have deemed acceptable as counter-signatories, referred to in the paperwork as people of good standing, which slaps the rest of us plebs with the mediocre branding. There's more to someone's character than empty social status. You can't judge us on whether dentists worship us or haters. My ideal counter-signatory would be my good friend Sarah, a full-time checkout worker and a voluntary carer. Alas, official plaudits rarely recognise compassion with people of good standing that has long been out of fashion. Say doctors, brokers, bankers, priests, reciprocants of honours, we bow to you and beg that you bestow your worth upon us. I realise that my satire is sledgehammer at best and working with such vulgar tools I'll never pass their test, especially with no one of note within my social orbit I really ought to know my place like dear old Ronnie Corbett's and learn to do just what I'm told the moment that I'm told it and put aside class prejudice in order to uphold it. I did work for the council once, delivering the mail. Perhaps I'll ask that councillor, the one who went to jail. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher with additional music from the High Rise original soundtrack. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing us a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're having what she's having in Rob Reiner's romantic comedy, When Harry Met Sally. You know, you may be the first attractive woman I have not wanted to sleep with in my entire life. That's wonderful, Harry. 
If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln.